Welcome to Broads, Books, and Booze. This is your host, Jamie and Monica. Hello. Hello, friends. Woo-hoo. So this month we are bringing you a podcast a little bit earlier than normal because we were really excited about this book. So Monica, you want to tell us about it? Yes, we are reading This Is Your Mind on Plants by Michael Pollan, who is one of our podcast favorites. Mm-hmm. He's really interesting to read. I really love his voice. And I feel like he's very informative and also entertaining. I agree. Yeah. And I I think he's a little bit older, so he has a lot of experiences and being able to describe things, which I find super interesting. And this book happens to be about three types of plants. He talks about... Um, opium poppies, he talks about caffeine, and also mescaline. So I wrote up some discussion questions, topics. Yeah. Yeah, we'll go ahead and get started on that. So the first discussion topic is, what is the central idea of the book? And are they personal, sociological, global, political Economic, spiritual, medical, or scientific? Yes. (laughs) I wholeheartedly agree, yes. (laughs) And for you, what was the main central idea of the book? I I had a really hard time pinpointing it down. I was trying to think about it. I was like, I think it's more of like awareness and education maybe because... um, seeing like he goes into these different plants that affect our minds in so many ways from and, from different angles and different points. So I felt like it was supposed to be like learn. Exactly. And I think that's what you, um, the key is what you said there, how these plants and how they affect your mind. I had jotted down um, plants used to change consciousness. And also another theme in the book is um, plants and being drugs or illicit drugs or whatever our viewpoint on that may be at different points in time is in history. <laughs> right, but they, they're definitely having effects on our minds. Right. And then the next area for discussion, um, you had jotted down opium made easy. And I think that was the article that he wrote. That was the article yeah, that he so wrote. Yeah, so if you wanted to talk about that a little bit, it was, I thought it was awesome. So in the, in the 90s, he wrote this long article about opium, about growing poppies, um, creating tea, and the uses that it has been used for in America prior to the war on drugs, and how he had looked through the catalogs to buy poppies and that the species of poppies that was illegal per the DEA was actually known by a lot of other names that you could buy commercially catalogs and grow these and then there was this sort of shake-up that the DEA was going and talking to seed growers and telling them hey you shouldn't be growing these anymore and they're like we're not saying it's illegal we're just saying that you probably shouldn't sell them. <laughs> and his whole opinion and thought about the war on drugs and how it was affecting these beautiful plants that people love and that they, you know, has this sort of history of being used as for headaches and aches and pains. 
and now it's become like this illicit. Oh my gosh, it's it's opium. I think that was super important is because the original use for it was like an herbal home remedy where you're grinding up the poppy seeds and you're making a tea. And it's really bitter and kind of gross, so you don't drink a lot of it, just right. enough to feel a little bit better. And it's mild. Um, he describes the um, effect as mild. It, it does make you relaxed and have a sense and feeling of wellness. So that is very different from like what you think of when you think of opium. Right. And when you hear the term opium poppy... And when I read this chapter, I thought a lot about um, what's the difference between art and pornography. You know it when you see it kind of thing. But yeah, you were talking about the DEA and stuff and some of the things that they went through. And that was super interesting, too. It was. And then um, he was writing it for a magazine article. And he, t he had them send it off to the lawyers. And the lawyers were like, you could probably get prosecuted and then it talks about forfeit and seizure which is a huge thing and it still happens and I thought that was something that would be important for us to talk about so you as a homeowner don't even have to be aware of the illegal drug activities happening on your property for your property to be prosecuted for drug offenses and then because they're being prosecuted you lose that property. And so he's talking about how publishing this article, talking about growing poppies and making some tea and just sort of experimenting with it could land him 20 years in prison and loss of his house and his entire lifestyle. And he had a, a young daughter at the time. And so it was kind of like really scary and like kind of spooky for him. It is really scary and it's really... I think his situation points out how it just seems almost a worse offense to me than these drug offenses is the sneaky way that you can um, prosecute some of these kinds of crimes and take people's property. Right. Thousands, <laughs> of, thousands of Americans during the war on drugs lost cars, homes, jewelry, personal effects, because of drug offenses of which I think part of the story too is that opioid addiction is not a criminal addiction it's more like a, um, a health care issue people who are addicts aren't addicts because of the drug they're addicts mostly because of trauma and other issues and trauma is a huge uh, focus in the book as well, there's a lot of talk about trauma. Right. So we can talk about that later. Yes. <laughs> but I think he does a really good job of explaining, like, the history of opium and the opium poppies and and how, um, how tainted it was from the very beginning used in colonial times to trade for tea and oh. taking advantage of the Chinese people right. by getting them addicted to opium so that they would be able to trade it for tea because they, um, England wasn't able to trade anything of value to them. They wanted coin for it. Right. Um, so that was a huge thing. Yeah, and then England went to war, fought a war with the Chinese government, beat them, to be able to sell them 
opium. I'm like, oh, what the heck? But yet, but yet, (laughs) it's actually pretty risky for uh, grandma to grow some poppies in her front yard if they so happen to be the wrong kind. (laughs) Right, right. And those seeds and that huge disinformation that people were talking like, oh, you can only collect them in the morning between these hours and you have to slice the seeds immediately and then collect all the pulp and blah, blah, blah. And he was like, no, none of that is true. None of that is true. Right. And you can buy in like dried flower arrangements, you know, enough poppy seed to make a opium tea with a poppy tea with and so all of these things are readily available except for then they're also an illicit drug that you could lose your home for it was the logic was very circular of the government and the dea and everything about you know what exactly was the wrong thing to do or the right thing to do right Uh, which then leads into the opioid crisis happening in america now where they have synthesized the opium and over prescribed it to an extent that people became addicted to it. And if they couldn't get it uh, through a prescription, they started using heroin. Right. And, and it was given out legally and as prescriptions and may or may not have been used as directed, but also with, you know, all the doctors, everybody was told that it was not addictive. Right, they were led to believe that it was way less addictive than it is by the manufacturer. Right. And just as a side note, if anybody watches that show on Amazon, there's a show on Amazon Prime. Um, Oh my gosh, I totally just blanked on the name of it. But it's about the opioid crisis and the pharmaceutical companies and um, how they knew it was addictive. Of course, it's fiction. I'm not saying... I'm not saying anything to get me in trouble here, <laughs> but I, it just went, I watched it as I was reading this book and it was just a lot of synchronicity. I was like, wow, that's so cool. <laughs> Great. I, I took a, is it, oh, I can't think of what it's called now. Napron, Napron, uh, the emergency aid, uh, nasal spray that you give people who have overdosed. I took a class for that. Oh. For, so I have a kit that I carry in my bag with me to and from work. Nice. And just, you know, for symptoms of overdose is mostly people stop breathing. So you give them the spray in the nose and they start breathing immediately. So those receptors in your brain get filled up um, and you just, you stop breathing. Wow. So that's how most people die of, of opioid overdoses. They just suffocate to death because their brain tells them that they're breathing, but they're not. And I think that was the biggest juxtaposition of this first part was the legal opioids that people are prescribed led to this huge crisis and thousands upon thousands of deaths. Whereas the home remedy of the poppy tea that great-great-grandma might have made you for a headache, you know, you don't see any issues or problems with that. But yet, who does the DEA go after but poppy seed distributors and people who grow poppy plants? And he never specifically points out the ridiculousness of that, but you can truly easily see it while reading it. (laughs) 
And he also discusses how during Prohibition, alcohol was so bad and, you know, it was just awful, but all the opiums were still legal and widely used by people. Yeah. Oh, oh speaking of alcohol. Yes. Yes. Speaking of alcohol, so I have made us a cocktail from this book that I brought from my library called Cheers to Michigan, a celebration of cocktail culture and craft distilleries by Tammy Coxon and Lester Graham. So on... <clears throat> Page 78 and 79 are instructions for making Apple Business by Theo Lieberman. So I believe they went to a bunch of different mills, uh, distilleries, places in Michigan and said, hey, give us a, a recipe. And so this is one from Michigan. It's two ounces of gin, one ounce of apple cider, half ounce of lime juice, and a half ounce of honey syrup. Honey syrup is two parts honey mixed with one part water. So I've got extra honey syrup left over. Then you just put it in a shaker, shake, 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 which Monica, ooh, Monica did for us, and then pour into a glass. And it is delicious. It's not overly sweet. It's not overly tart. It's, it's really good. Yeah, yeah, definitely love it. All right, and then we're on to, I think, probably my favorite chapter in the book, which was about caffeine. And um, I think it's funny that you really labeled this section coffee, although it was a little bit about tea also, but we didn't really talk too much about tea. <laughs> and um, so the first part I thought was super cool. Discuss how the coffee break started and the court ruling about coffee breaks benefiting the employers. Right, so beginning of the Industrial Revolution, employees are working long hours in these factories and they get tired and they're less productive. So business owners are like, hey, you know, if we give these people coffee, they work more, they do more, they work longer, we get a lot more out of them if they, you know, take this 15 minute coffee break. But we're not gonna pay them because that's time they're not working. So they need to clock out for their coffee and then clock back in and do some more work. And the worker- <laughs> But can, it's mandatory, but the break's mandatory. The break's mandatory and you have to drink the coffee, which everybody wants the coffee because then they're like, oh, I'm more alert and I'm, you know, mm -hmm. I, I can focus better. But they didn't want to pay for it. So the workers were like, hey, listen, uh, you're making us take this break, so you're gonna pay us for it. Yeah. And they're like, uh, no, this benefits you um, as well. And so they went to court and the judge was sort of like, well, you know, it, it benefits the employer more than it does the employee. The employee gets like a 15 minute break, woohoo, where the employer gets, you know, all this major production for it. Right. And even employees who were normally not making stuff up to quality or not really making stuff fast enough were actually performing adequately or above adequately after implementing the coffee breaks. Yeah, so that's how oh. coffee breaks started in America. Yeah. And um, another part that he talks about coffee is the traditions of the coffee houses in Europe versus England. And I thought that was particularly interesting. So I... My little nerd heart screams out when a book that I've read is referenced in another book. <laughs> so when he was talking about the, the history of the world in six glasses, and I was like, ooh, I've read that, yay! <laughs> 
and the coffee houses. I love the coffee houses. So at the time of the Enlightenment period, coffee houses were people went to have discussions because it wasn't a class-driven um, place to meet. Anybody could go in there and pay for a coffee of the same amount. It didn't matter who you were or what you did. So it was a place where people of different classes to mix and mingle and discuss ideas. So in Europe, the coffee house was open to anyone. Women were allowed. They could go in. They could have discussions just as much as men could. Where in England, women weren't allowed. So which is why tea became more associated with femininity and mm -hmm. with women because they weren't allowed into the coffee houses, but they still wanted their dose of caffeine. Yeah. So tea houses, tea ceremonies, and tea became very popular with women because of misogyny. Well, and I also <laughs> thought it was interesting that in England, the coffee houses, depending on where they were, had sort of a speciality um, of the types of things that were discussed there. I would, I think they talked about one of the coffee houses actually ended up becoming Lloyd's of London, like, isn't that insurance and, you know, different, like for merchants. And then, you know, I'm sure others were more scholarly and others more political. And so depending on what you wanted to talk about, that's where you would go. And I thought that was pretty cool. Right. And there's like a myth of the French Revolution having started at a coffee house. And I thought that was hilarious. Oh, and that goes, I did write this down because I thought it was funny. And it said something um, about the political, cultural, and intellectual trouble troublemaking in coffee houses could would not have happened as easily in a pub. <laughs> <laughs> the coffee tends to sharpen your uh, planning and focusing ability. <laughs> the pubs, not so much. Not so much. Not so much at all. Mm-hmm. So do you, do you want to talk about how the coffee house came to America? Yes. Um, so I believe it was Pete's, wasn't it? Uh, well, this is like the, like how real coffee came to America. It was Pete's coffee house in like 1966. And his, he wanted to introduce Americans to real good coffee, like roasted coffee, um, a European style uh, coffee. Right. Not the swill that we had been drinking up until that point in time. And I thought it was interesting that he actually mentored the founders of Starbucks. I found that fascinating too. Yeah. Yeah. Prior to that, Americans drank mostly instant coffee, which is Ooh. disgusting. Well, at least the instant coffee of 1960s. Right. I do buy the Starbucks instant coffee right now. That's pretty good. I huh. highly recommend it. Mm. All right, so um, I think... Did you want to talk about your feelings with coffee oh. and how you felt about oh. after reading this chapter? This chapter, out of all the books I've read by Michael Pollan and the different drugs and things that affect your mind, c coffee made me feel like the biggest junkie addict in the world. I seriously was like guilty feeling drinking my coffee while I was reading this book. I was like... I really am addicted to this stuff, you know? Same. I have friends that would tease me, like, oh, you love wine and cheese so much. And I was like, I would never give up coffee. No. I'm like, I can't live without coffee. I'm like, I can't wake up without coffee. I have my first cup of coffee before I leave work. And then I have my second cup on the way. And then when I get to work, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm finally awake. 
Well, what I thought was interesting and which made me want to give up the coffee, even though I love it so much, is he said that the way that coffee affects your brain, it makes you a more linear thinker as opposed to some of the psychedelic type drugs he's talked about before that make your thoughts a little more diffuse. Right. And I don't want to be a linear thinker. I'd rather be a diffuse thinker, but I'm hooked on coffee, so we may never know. <laughs> it's all about the dopamine. I could have been a genius. <laughs> but now I'm just a production worker. No, I don't know. <laughs> oh, shoot. Uh, I felt like very validated in, in acknowledging my addiction to coffee. I'm like, yeah, you're you're right. You're right. I mean, like... I got coffee for Christmas and my mm -hmm. birthday, and I was thrilled. A friend of mine just sent me some coffee last month. My mom brought me some coffee this week, and I was like, more Yay. coffee! Yeah, Because I can't find out. I can't. Right. Because it's, it's like, it's an emergency for when I'm out of coffee. Oh, I hear you. Yeah, it is a sad, sad day. If anybody in my house wakes up late and we have to go on our day without coffee, not, not a good day. <laughs> Oh, now the last, the last section is about mescaline, which is something that I didn't know a whole lot about before reading this book, other than my favorite band from when I was in eighth grade was The Doors and named after The Doors of Perception. So I was familiar in that way. See, everything I knew about it was from Ooh, sorry. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. <laughs> Which I love that movie. I don't do drugs. I haven't done drugs. And I watched that movie. And it was just fascinating and hilarious. But um, I do remember the masculine. But he was doing a whole bunch of other drugs when he was doing it. But that movie is crazy town. <laughs> this is a little less crazy town. And approached in a, in a, the same way that um, the How to Change Your Mind book kind of approaches these types of consciousness altering drugs which is um to explore your consciousness and to kind of help make you a better person and that sort of thing i don't think any of his books other than coffee <laughs> really make you feel like you would be a junkie for doing this kind of stuff i don't know oh I forgot to talk about how he went off the coffee for three months. Oh. He was doing the abstinence, and then he was like, I can't wait to get back, and it's going to be so exciting, my first time having coffee again. <laughs> and it's like, then I'm just going to make it once a week. It's going to be like Saturday, Saturdays I have coffee. <laughs> and he had his first cup of coffee, and then he was like, thinking about having a cup of coffee later that day. He's like, what happened to once a week? <laughs> I was like, I had it one time in three months now. Suddenly I want a second cup. What the hell, coffee? Yeah. Yeah. What the hell, coffee? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. So the mescaline, did you want to talk about maybe the different kinds of cacti? Well, uh, so there's... There's the one particular cacti, and I don't, I don't know any of the scientific names for it. No, no. So it grows wild, um, primarily in the desert, like in the Texas area. It is considered a scheduled one substance. So these cactuses are used in religious uh, purposes with the Native American church, which yeah. I had never heard of the Native American church until reading this section of the book. 
And that's the peyote cactus, right? I think it's the peyote cactus that's used for the Native American church. I think they use... Is, is that what they use? I think so. I know they have the two different... The other one was San names. Pedro. Well, the San Pedro one still has the mescaline in it. Yes. And that was the one with the, the girl that did the ceremony with him. Right. Which she learned from the dude in Peru. Right. And the peyote is the one that they harvest and, like, basically sell back to the... Native to the American church, yeah. yeah. So it's um, it's a particular cactus. Um, there's buttons on it that people eat. The government has authorized four different sort of agencies, our businesses, to go and harvest them. They generally hire high school white dudes that just go out there and sort of butcher the plant, which is uh, terrible because then the plant isn't able to regenerate and grows, so it's becoming a diminishing um, commodity for the Native American church. So there's a gentleman who wanted to sort of help keep it in supply, not necessarily uh, like cultivating it, but close. Like mm -hmm. here's, we're going to grow baby plants, we're going to plant them out in the wild, and then we will make sure that we harvest them very carefully so that we can continue to use these plants but other people felt like that was disingenuous to the religion because they felt like the spirit of the earth is inside the cactus and then if you're just going to sort of grow it as a commodity then you're not really being true to the purpose of it and I thought that was very interesting that as long as you were very careful with your intention and your phrasing they didn't like the term of them being grown in greenhouses but if you said they were nurseries because greenhouses kind of has that connotation of artificially growing whereas nurseries you more think of like you know giving birth to and taking care of babies right baby so plants. yeah so it's important for this native american church to be able to find them out in the wild because it's a gift from nature but why anybody ever thought it was a great idea to like have some governing body hire high school kids to go out there and yank them out of the ground rather than have the Native Americans just take it as they need to. It seems horrific that that is still continuing to this day. Mm -hmm. Like absolutely horrific. Yes. Very horrific. Yeah. So M Michael's looking for this cactus called the San Pedro Come to find out, he has one growing in his yard. And he um, he takes the the masculine with, well, Judith is just kind of like watching over him. And he said that um, one of the reasons why I didn't become super popular with hippies in the psychedelic movement is because instead of being like LSD where you're looking at like an evening, mm -hmm. it's like a 14-hour commitment. So it's a long, longer time that you're under the influence of this. Well, and I thought it was interesting, too, that how he gets the mescaline is um, two capsules of the, of the synthesized mescaline arrive to him as a gift, which is um, typical for psychonauts to share. Because the community <laughs> is very generous. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was sweet. I was like, oh, that's sweet. He's yeah. like, hey, I want to try this. And I'm like, welcome to the club, Michael. Here you go. Here's a gift. 
And he's like, I'm going to go to the beach and have a great day. And torture my wife, who has to babysit me for 14 hours. <laughs> no, I'm sure she had fun, too. Yeah, enjoying herself at the beach with mm-hmm. him. I'm sure she had a good time. I yeah. feel for Judith. I mean, I do. I feel for any wife, let's be honest. But <laughs> she puts up a, a lot with his craziness. Yeah, his experience um, was very interesting, I thought. And you're right, it it wasn't, like, kind of really out there. It was definitely more, um, he points out that you're very much so in the present moment. And I jotted down, he said it was haiku consciousness. I almost thought it seemed almost if he was describing an autistic experience of someone, like, of accounts of people I've read from that are autistic, they notice everything about them, like things that our brains overlook. They're in that super present, detailed moment all the time. Like, I don't just see cows in a field. I see 15 cows. Three of them are brown. Two of them are white. This one has so many spots. You know, I see this many feet of grass, and I see the post and this blah, blah, blah. You know, so much detail. That was sort of like his conscious being present in the moment. And as an evolutionary point, we couldn't do that all the time because we would be eaten. Yeah. We wouldn't survive that way. I must admit, of all the psychedelic type experiences I have read about, um, mescaline did not sound like something I would be ever interested in experiencing. For time frame aside, 14 hours aside, like, yeah. I don't know about that. And when he wasn't being super present with his surroundings, he was being super present with his inside feelings and things that were going on inside of him emotionally. Yeah. So it's definitely the the Native American church uses it as a, a way to fix problems. So they're like, you come to us, you have a problem, you have, you know, a, addiction, alcoholism, domestic abuse you know there's a problem in your relationship you come together we are all in this together we're experiencing it as one you know focusing on this trauma and helping people get through the trauma and get through to the other side and find solutions yeah and feel better about those choices yeah so oh oh, i do want to talk about the ghost dance okay so back um in the 1800s, there was the ghost dance, which terrified white people. So it was Native Americans taking the peyote and having these uh, religious experiences. And they would stay up all night dancing and chanting and um, having these experiences. And the white people were like, oh my gosh, this is terrifying. They're going to kill us all. And even though they had other white people who were like, there's absolutely no way they would do any violence. Mm-hmm. Taking this drug is perfectly safe. White people are still terrified of it. And uh, had it banned, killed the religion, killed their religious leader. They killed Sitting Bull in December of 1890. And that pretty much killed the whole mm-hmm. whole religion. So fast forward to 1819... You know, it doesn't seem like... 1918. Sorry. 1918. (laughs) It doesn't seem like that far away, but, you know, you're like a couple generations later, Mm -hmm. they're bringing, they bring it back, 
with the Native American church, but they put like a white person spin on it a little bit. Yeah, and it was very quiet and done inside the teepees, and it was like a seemed more like church, right? To yeah, yeah to because they were were they on I think they were on reservations at this time. Yes. So and it started spreading from one reservation to another. Right. Right. So although I'm glad that they were able to preserve a little of that through those horrendous times. I mean, the damage that was done to their people and their culture. I mean, it's stuff. It, they'll never get that back, you know? Right. That's pretty, that was a very heart wrenching part of the book to read about. I thought the whole purpose was to decimate their language and culture. Yeah. Oh, um, one of the quotes that I liked the most about the Native American church I wrote down here was mm-hmm. Comanche chief Quana Parker. The white man goes into his church house and talks about Jesus, but the Indian goes into his teepee and talks to Jesus. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. So uh, Michael spends all this time in the book also talking about how he wants to know what happens in the teepee. And so many people he talks to are sort of like, you know what? We've had enough problems with you white people. We do not need you coming here, stealing our plant, taking our medicine from us, mm-hmm. appropriating what we do for your own white needs. Mm-hmm. We don't want you near it. Stay away. And he's like, I totally understand that and appreciate that. And you're right. We're assholes. And I really want to see what goes on in the teepee. Right. <laughs> he's like, I get what you're saying. You're, you're very valid in it. I still want to know what goes on. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's what takes us to, um, through the next part. I really wanted to talk about Taloma and her story next, because I feel like that's a good segue. Oh, yeah. Um, because of talking about kind of a cultural appropriation, I mean, there's a lot of, I feel like Taloma was very genuine. And she, um, well, she went through a lot. So Taloma um, was living in, she was in a bad place. She was living in this terrible life and she found this retreat center and they wouldn't let they wouldn't let her in. Oh, she had had a near death experience. Well, this was after. Right. So, yeah, it's like right before that she had a near death experience. Oh, okay. I thought it was after she was at the retreat center. No, I think it was. Oh, I think it was, it was before. Before she found the retreat mm-hmm. center. Yeah, she had a broken. No, because it said while she had a near death experience and her neck was broken, and then she discovered plant medicines during her recovery. <gasps> okay. Yeah. So I thought that happened afterwards, but it might not have. But either way, it was weird how she found this place because they wouldn't let her in because she wasn't taking any classes there, but they gave her a catalog and then she locked herself out of her car and she had to wait hours for like AAA to come. So she's read through the catalog and then she ended up living there and teaching there. Taking all the courses. Right. And having all these experience with all these, um, you know, religious leaders and, and, and I was led to believe and I think it did say in the book she did study with different like Native American teachers and about all these different plant medicines and yes before after either one she did have this crazy near-death experience where she broke her neck and was continuing this learning while she was recovering and so she really wanted to share this experience with other people and so she does 
um, ceremonies where she, it's um, Wakuma, is that what it's called? Yes. Wakuma. And I don't remember if it's, is that from the San Pedro plant? Yes. I think it's from the San Pedro it's plant. It's from the San Pedro Yeah. So, I don't know. I think that was a good thing to come next because it's almost like, you know, she is the type of person that I think the Native Americans would see as like, you're stealing our stuff. Yeah. You know, but yet... She's you, still helping people. You, I was just going to say, yeah, you can't deny the the validity of how of how she does help people. So it was I felt very conflicted right in this section of the book. So there there was the group um who are lobbying to have plant medicine legalized in the United States including um peyote mescaline and Native American church was angry about that because they're like, listen, there's not enough for us. Mm -hmm. we, we don't have enough for our ceremonies, for our religion, for our cultural beliefs. We can't have you people taking it. Yes. And they're like, you can synthesize it. And they're like, you know, we're not even sure we want you to synthesize it because you might be getting the real thing. Right. So they're like, no, back off, hands off. And I'm mm -hmm. like, I feel for that. Yes. I see that. I'm like, you know what? They've suffered enough. Mm, exactly. I agree with them. I'm like, it does help people, and I can see why other people are like, well, this helps everyone. Well, that's true. Right. However, However, I think we're not at a point where we can be willing to let this help everyone. And I think that is an excellent point, and I think really that's more along the lines of where my heart was leaning towards also, especially when that group that is trying to get all the plant medicine legalized refused to take the cactus off of their website. Right. And I thought, oh, what a slap in the face. I was, you know? was so disappointed. Yeah, I, I was a vaguely horrified by that. Yeah. It seemed to go against the spirit of the what you would think the intention would be for having the plant medicine legalized. You wouldn't think a person who would want that done for the right reasons would deny a request of the Native Americans to take the cactus off their freaking website. <laughs> you know? Right. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, that was a low blow. Yeah. I'm like, I have less respect for you right now because their reasons are very valid. Definitely. And they deserve to have this more than, you know, the masses do. Right. They're afraid there's going to be hippies coming out here and just tearing out the plants like crazy. Well, then even worse, I think you had said, you know, for us to discuss what our feelings were. Um, I think his name was Don Victor and he had um, offered to do a Zoom ceremony with Michael Pollan. And <laughs> what was your initial gut reaction to that? My initial reaction was horrified. And then when Tuloma was like, mm, no, I was like, oh, I feel a lot better about her now. Because <laughs> I was like, oh, this dude is crazy. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of stuff you can do online. A lot of kind of meetings you can have online. I'm thinking plant medicine ceremony is not one of them. I'm agreeing with you. Yeah. I, I, I'm thinking you need to have somebody there who right. can physically take care of everything and knows what's going to happen and any possible outcomes. Yeah. Right. Uh, Zoom is, is not okay. Enough. Yeah, that is not okay. I sort of skipped around here a little bit. Um, was there anything else in the previous section that I, um, before the well, um, Don Victor... No, I mean, like, we can talk about the, the tea ceremony that they they did, like, the making of the tea, the, the Wakuma tea, and then the small indoor ceremony with Michael and Judith. Oh, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, it was. And did they, she, the, it was Taloma who taught him the two different ways to make the tea. Right. And one was a little more painstaking than the other. Right. And actually, I didn't take any notes on the tea ceremony part. I must have totally skipped over that. So if you wanted to talk about um that with Michael and Judith and their and drinking the tea, that would be great. So I really like the phrase that he used about what was happening in the world. He called it a drunk at the wheel. So they make they make these plans to have an outdoor ceremony with Taloma, with the, with the tea, with a large group of people, they're going to wear masks, they're going to social distance, and then California set on fire. Yeah. And he was just sort of like, okay, we're already in a pandemic. Mm-hmm. I'm already in lockdown. I'm already going a little crazy. Staying at home too all the time. <laughs> Outdoors was the safe place to be. Now, indoors is a safe place to be, so my world just got even smaller than it was. So, you know, he's like, it's time to start self-medicating at this point because his world has just become so, so tiny. So he does the Zoom meeting with Don, Don Victor, right? Mm-hmm. And Taloma's like, no, we're not going to do that. So instead they're going to, they have access to a, large living room Sandy has got a mansion and they're going to have a small group of people come together and do a ceremony so before that happens Taloma comes over and she does uh they make the tea there's a ceremony for making the tea so she goes through the different ways of making the tea so um one of them I don't remember exactly but it was sort of like you put the whole cactus in and you uh, extract it, you boil it, and you it's strain like a reduction, kind of, isn't it? It's yeah, just a lot you, of cooking down. Yeah, you cook it for a long time, you strain it, you put it back in the pot, and you cook it back down, and then uh, you put it in jars and stick it in the fridge. And then the other one was like you're slicing it open and cutting out certain parts of it, and then um, that part you just also cook into a tea. Mm-hmm. So he said that one was a lot faster and easier and you sort of end up with the same product both ways but yeah i don't know so then we skip to the indoor ceremony yeah that was it was cool how she set up i do remember this part it was cool how she set up um the space you know she had it was almost like an altar with different icons in different places Mm -hmm. yeah and, you know, clearing the space with her intentions. And it was very, had a very new age. Everything gets smudged with sage. Everything. Right. <laughs> All the people do, the tea does, everything does. Sage everywhere. Yeah. Smudge, smudge, smudge. <laughs> <laughs> and it was funny. I feel like, the kind of like from his other book, How to Change Your Mind, when he and Judith take the, drink the mushroom tea. And I feel like the same thing sort of happened here. Judith and his worry for her kind of sobers him. And I felt that, I just thought that was very sweet. I thought it was very sweet the first time I read it. And I thought it was really sweet this time that I read it too. I felt like this tea ceremony experience was a lot about him um, witnessing what his wife was going through very profoundly. Right. He said that she's normally a very private person. Mm-hmm. She has uh, leftover guilt from her father 
who was uh, abandoned and orphaned. Hmm. And her mom won't let her give that up, even though her father's passed on. And so she was uh, reckoning with her dad of him saying, it's okay, Judith, you can let it go. Yeah. Which she had been told that before in different experiences, but this time it felt more genuine and real to her during the ceremony. And then the whole gathering together sort of focused their attention on Judith, which was a lot like exactly what actually happens inside the teepee. Right. Where everyone's focus goes onto a person and helps them heal. And then they can go back to themselves. And And I do believe he mentioned that it did feel like they were all connected, Mm -hmm. you know? And, and I think that that is something greatly lacking in our culture is that connection with other people especially you're I think feel like we're so worried about being judged that it's hard to be completely open and honest in these kinds of situations so maybe this kind of ceremony with these kind of consciousness inducing (laughs) altering substances let you express yourself more I'm not too sure takes down some of the barriers that are in place that keep that from happening maybe yeah yeah but it was a very cool experience for his wife uh, for sure i'm not sure do you remember like i don't remember him saying too much about himself not too not too much but he was just sort of like um processing his own thoughts and feelings Mm -hmm. and i think that was just you know like still being in the pandemic um was sort of like therapeutic for him yeah it's part of like his self-care Oh. I like how he had a, a little footnote of who thought she is uh, for future readers who have no idea. <laughs> I thought that was funny, too. <laughs> yeah, the pandemic just sort of, um, I've noticed now reading these new releases is working its way into all the books that are coming out lately and lots of different perspectives. And this was definitely a good one. Um, So do you have any good ending thoughts about the book? Like your overall, did you like it? I liked it. It was not long. Mm -hmm. Um, There's just the three sections. I wouldn't even really call them chapters because they're like, I don't know, like 60 pages each. But it's pretty pretty short, but very interesting. A lot to think about. Mm -hmm. I mean, I love Michael Pollan. I've read, I don't know, like eight of his books. So, Wow. Yeah, I love him too. I love his voice. Um. I love what he does a really good job of really getting to the heart of the issues and pointing out the, um, the obvious. I know that sounds really stupid, but I mean, even just us talking about the book, there is so much more that you can get out of this book by reading it seriously. Like it is short, but I feel like it's jam packed. And and my favorite chapter was the coffee chapter, and I didn't go into the book thinking that that would be the case. I had no idea. Yeah. I have very little expectations. I'm like, I will be entertained and learn. I know that. (laughs) (laughs) Yay. Yes. So thank you, everyone, for listening. Yeah, we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.